From Miami Law, I'm Annette Uges, and this is The Explainer. You know, about a fourth of Florida's uh, inmates are elderly and unvaccinated, and they're at serious risk. Uh, so I think the extent to which we're not fully taking in consideration the elderly population that's in prison who have sort of aged out of recidivism, um, we're missing a big opportunity to, to help people that we can really help. Welcome back to season seven of the Miami Law Explainer, the legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines. As the pandemic rages on, the dire situation in many prisons has bullied on unabated. According to a report in the Journal of the American Medical Association, the infection rate for COVID-19 was five times higher among state and federal prisoners than among the general public. Miami Innocence Clinic director Craig Trocino and one of his students, Tori Simkovich, join us for a look behind the bars. Let's go to executive producer Catherine Skip with the interview. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks Happy for having to be us. here. Uh, Craig, let's start with you. Um, kind of, can you give us a little of the long view of life in jail or prison during now the fourth wave of uh, of COVID? Well, <clears throat> I don't suspect life's changed much uh, from the previous waves. Um, there's social distancing, of course. Um, I suspect things have been uh, relaxed a little bit, uh, just like uh, everybody else seemed to have let their guard down. One of the major concerns, I think, is, is uh, that nobody really is talking about as far as the prison population is concerned, but not, not merely in, not just in Florida, but elsewhere as well, is the aging population of, of inmates. And that's a function of, you know, tough on crime sentencing, mandatory minimums and so forth. Um, and, uh, you know, about a fourth of Florida's uh, inmates are elderly and unvaccinated and they're at serious risk. Uh, so I think the extent to which we're not fully taking in consideration the elderly population that's in prison who have sort of aged out of recidivism. Um, we're missing a big opportunity to, to help people that we can really help. That's kind of at the basis for the Sirhan Sirhan uh, parole hearing is that as prisoners are aging, they cost the system more and more. Yeah, there's there's actually been that's true. Uh, and there's been, uh, um, you know, some people talking about it. Uh, um, some some uh, uh, prosecutors, uh, like the gentleman in Philadelphia, um, is pushing to release people who have been in prison for you know thirty, forty years, who are now into their sixties and seventies, who are who have aged out of out of recidivism. And then the the question becomes: Do we continue to hold these individuals at you know one hundred twenty bucks a day? Um, and, and a burden on the uh, on, on the tax rolls, or can we can we safely let them uh, out to live their remaining years? Um, you know, out you know, out um, among us, where there's really no risk of uh, of recidivism. The recidivism rates are ex- astonishingly low uh, after I think about 55 years old, um, and uh, uh, which means that uh, I'm I'm really on the verge of, of not recidivating. Um, <laughs> since I'm close to 55. <laughs> um, well, let's bring a little more of the focus back to to you and and the work you and your students are doing in the clinic. How has has COVID really changed how you and your your group advocate on behalf of your clients? Well, it's 
a lot of what we do before we get into court is investigation and research. Uh, and it's forced our investigations to go virtual, which becomes a little bit cumbersome and difficult when you're trying to locate witnesses. You can't really go door to door anymore, find people and talk to people. Um, the research is, has been online, but the, the, the investigations have been slowed or made much more cumbersome given the fact that we can't do person to person sorts of uh, methods of, of investigation. Um, courts have been virtual, so that slowed down all the court documents. So it's been difficult to get things in front of a court. Um, so court hearings have been virtual. We had a, an evidentiary hearing in January that was by Zoom, which uh, um, was uh, an interesting endeavor. Um, and even the appellate courts have gone virtual. So the oral arguments are virtual. In fact, the oral argument in the Dustin Duty case was by Zoom at the First District Court of Appeal. Um, so some courts are opening up now and uh, and getting, excuse me, um, and and uh, doing more in-person uh, um, hearings and, and even trials at some point. But with the ramp up of this current wave or I don't know what wave, I guess is the, the best word for it. Um, the future is uncertain. We have a, an evidentiary hearing that should be scheduled soon, but it's unclear whether that's going to be by Zoom or live, or it's going to be delayed until it can be live. So we're sort of in a holding pattern uh, on something. Um, Tori, I'd love for you to, I know you worked really hard on, on a recent uh, successful uh, case. Can you talk a little about how that that case started and kind of the TikTok bringing us up to, to today? Sure, Catherine. So uh, the client's name is Dustin Duty, and he was convicted of armed robbery in Jacksonville in 2013. Uh, in 2016, he wrote a letter to the Innocence Clinic, and that's how uh, the clinic became involved in his representation. Um, initially, the trial court deni denied his motion for post-conviction relief that clinic students filed. And my involvement in this case began right after the trial court denied that first motion for post-conviction relief. So we raised three claims that really highlight just how flawed his conviction was. Um, first, his trial counsel was ineffective by failing to call an alibi witness that would have proved he was not at the scene of the crime. So his boss at the roofing company he worked for was actually in the courtroom willing and ready to testify. And his attorney never called him. And he would have testified that he dropped Dustin off in the area where the robbery occurred after the crime had already happened. Uh, the second claim that we raised was that his trial attorney failed to impeach a detective who was essentially lying on the stand. Uh, and there's an interrogation video that actually shows that this detective was lying. So not only did his trial attorney put this detective on the stand, but then he failed to impeach him in any way, shape or form. And then the third and to me, the most important claim that we raised was that his trial counsel failed to um, to move to suppress a highly suggestive show up identification. So the only evidence that existed in the whole case against Dustin was this show up identification by the victim. Essentially, police brought the victim to an area where she looked at Dustin in handcuffs from 20 feet away, and she said, yes, that's him. Well, of course, that, uh, that type of identification is extremely suggestive, and that's the only evidence in the case. So by failing to challenge that at all, his trial counsel 
essentially ensured that he was not going to have a fair trial. So after we filed that appeal to the first district court of appeal in Florida, um, we just recently found out that the appellate court agreed with us on all of those counts and reversed his conviction, which was a huge, huge win for the clinic. So where are where are we now moving forward on that on that case? Um, well, we are. The, what the appellate court did was reverse and remand for a new trial uh, because we were arguing that his trial lawyer was ineffective. In essence, his trial lawyer was so bad, it was as if he didn't have one operating for him, um, which was essentially the case. Uh, so we're back in pretrial status right now, trying to convince the state attorney's office in Duval County to uh, come to the right conclusion and, and determine that there is no case against Mr. Duty and to dismiss it, um, mainly because the uh, the eyewitness identification, uh, the identification by the victim that Tori was speaking of, um, the, in order for the court to have ruled in our favor, the court had to conclude that had the trial lawyer made that motion, it would have been granted. And therefore, the evidence is inadmissible. And so it was it's, it'd be inadmissible now. Uh, so it's our opinion that the going forward, based on the first district court of appeals opinion, this state no longer has any admissible evidence against Mr. Duty and the case should be just forthwith dismissed. Are there lessons from the, the duty case that can be applied more, more broadly, more widely? Yeah, I, I, I think so. Uh, and in particular, I think it's in the area of the suggestiveness of the identification of the eyewitness identification. Um, if we look at the data, eyewitness identifications have caused more wrongful convictions than all of the other factors combined. They can be very suggestive. And that's if there's a lineup in this particular case, it was, as Tori mentioned, it was a show up where there's one individual and they bring the victim or the witness by and go, and he's standing around four or five police officers and say, is that the guy? And they, eh, it kind of looks like him, which is essentially what happened here. But it was worse here because the victim had a very particular description of the person who robbed her. She said he, uh, uh, he was wearing a green hoodie sweatshirt and a red Budweiser baseball cap. She never said anything else about the attire other than that. When Mr. Duty was stopped not long after this description was given, he was wearing no shirt. He had a tool belt and a backpack on, no baseball cap. And, and according to the officer, he had what was called, what was referred to as a very obvious roofing hammer on his tool belt. But the officer stops him anyway. So he's attired nothing like he's described. They take him, they take him to, or they bring the victim over to, to do this uh, show up. They take away his backpack. They take away his tool belt. They take away the hammer. And they force him to put on a white T-shirt and stand there. So now they've completely altered the way he was looked, the way he looked to more match the way this, the assailant was described. Still sans hat, sans hoodie, right? But for some reason, there was no motion to, to suppress that. And when we presented all this evidence to the trial court, they, decided, they denied our motion in post-conviction. The appellate court, the first district court of appeal, in a fairly strongly worded opinion, said no. That's just wrong. That's unduly suggestive. And counsel was not operating under the bounds of the Sixth Amendment right to counsel when he failed to move to suppress it. 
So I think that that concept in any case where there's a show up identification uh, like this, where there's one person or there's an altar in clothing or the person doesn't meet the, the particular dis- physical clothing description that the, the witness uh, put forth. I think this case will be uh, important in that, in that regard going forward to establish that that's a suggestive identification and it shouldn't be admitted. Got it. Um, anything you uh, either of you'd like to add in closing? I would just like to add that, um, as Craig talked about a little bit, um, you know, eyewitness identifications are the leading cause of wrongful convictions. And so the victim in this case didn't mean to harm Mr. Duty or convict him. She wasn't looking to convict him. She genuinely believed it was him. And so it teaches us a bit about the fallibility of human memory. And so when you have a victim or another witness saying, this is the person who did it, that's really compelling evidence to a jury, but it shouldn't be because it's unreliable. And so I think that uh, all of us in the legal profession and jurors have to keep that in mind that eyewitness identification is not as reliable as we think. I think that's really important. And, and along those lines, this particular victim, when she was told that Mr. Duty did not have the green hoodie, did not have the red baseball cap, was wearing a tool belt and a backpack, her response to that was, if I'd have known that at the time, I wouldn't have confidently identified him. So much so that at the evidentiary hearing, she was Mr. Duty's witness. She wasn't the witness for the state of Florida. She was his witness for, this, for Mr. Duty, which is extraordinary. So not only did they alter Mr. Duty in a suggestive way, they kept information from the victim that would have allowed her to have a more positive identification. Well, cool. We'll have to get together again when uh, when Mr. Duty walks free. And hopefully that'll be very soon. Good, good. Well, thank you both for joining us. It's been interesting as always, and we'll see you around. All right. Thank you. Appreciate thank you, it. Catherine. Thanks for joining us at The Explainer for a whole new season of interpreting legal issues in the headlines. If you love our show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at explainer at miami.edu. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Rady Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Uguez. Today's episode is brought to you by the 46th Annual Boyer Institute on Condominium and Cluster Development, the October 7th and 8th Conference will include discussions from the Condominium and Life Advisory Task Force, a group created by the Florida Bar in the aftermath of the Surfside condo collapse. For more information, visit law.miami.edu forward slash condo.